Welcome to a new episode of Time to Shine. This is your host, Oscar Santolaya. Time to Shine presents you interviews with successful public speakers who share their experience and secrets with you in a weekly podcast. Hello, hello there. Thank you for being with us today. Today we'll talk about the persuasive power of words. In other words, we'll talk about rhetoric. We'll learn how to use easy rhetoric techniques suitable for any type of talk. Our today's special guest is a real expert in a subject. John Zimmer is a speaker and presentation skills trainer based in Geneva. He's seven-time European champion of public speaking. John is editor of mannerofspeaking.org, a very popular blog about public speaking followed by readers worldwide. John is also co-creator of Rhetoric, the public speaking game. Hello, John. Hey, Oscar. Good to be here. Very welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you here today, John. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Uh, very simply, I am from Canada, but I have been living in Geneva, Switzerland since 1998. I'm a lawyer by training, and I, my, my professional experience uh, began in a big law firm in downtown Toronto. I did a lot of corporate commercial law and environmental law. In 1998, I had a great opportunity to come to Geneva to head up a program uh, at the United Nations I worked at the United Nations for seven years. Then I spent another five years working at the International Organization for Migration on another program. And following that, I spent five years as a lawyer at the World Health Organization. So I've had a, a, a blended career both in the private sector and the public sector. Along the way here in Geneva, I began to get requests to help people with public speaking, with speeches, with presentations, and to make a, a long story short, over the years, this became grew to such a point where at the end of February of this year, I left the UN system to be a full-time speaker and trainer and coach. I teach public speaking and presentation skills at the University of Lausanne. Also, I go down to Yesen, Barcelona once a year to work with the executive MBA program there. And I work with individuals, organizations, and companies to help them improve their public speaking. Awesome. You're, you're coming also to Helsinki once a year, right? That's right. I've, I've, <laughs> now, I've, I've been up to Helsinki, in fact, four times in the last few years. And, and I love visiting Finland. It's great. And to see people like you and people like Timo Sori and other people there, it's a lot of fun for me to go up there. And I'm looking forward to going back in 2016. Now that you mentioned that you took this decision of uh, quitting your job and start doing your career as a full-time public speaker, you mentioned this on your TEDx talk you have in Lausanne. Yes, it was last year, right? You that's right. In this in this talk, you you announce your motivation and you announce you are starting now. Could you tell us from there to now what has happened? Well, at, when I gave the TEDx talk, that was in, if I remember correctly, February of 2014. And it's funny because the previous year, towards the end of 2013, I'd actually handed in my resignation at the WHO. I told them I was going to leave. And they came back 
saying, we'd like you to stay, would you consider part-time? And so when I gave that talk, I had decided, okay, I'm going to try it. 50% WHO, 50% uh, on my own. And that's how 2014 went. It was basically all it was it, my my time was split 50-50 and it was a very interesting experience and i'm very grateful for the experience it allowed me to really lay a foundation for my for my independent career but i have to say that by the end of 2014 i really felt i was being pulled in two directions i had, mm-hmm. I had the who track and i had my speaking track and although i could have continued on like that very comfortably i realized that I'm not going to achieve everything that I could possibly achieve in either domain. Mm-hmm. There, you know, Scott Birkin, who wrote Confessions of a mm-hmm. Public Speaker, he sent me a very nice, a very nice tweet when I announced this year that I was going to go full time on my own. And he said, you know, there's a power in doing things a hundred percent, in not doing things by half. And so I made the decision that at the beginning of this year, it was time to say goodbye to the WHO. I left on very good terms. I still am in very close contact with many people there, good friends. And, but since then, I've been on my own, and it's been wonderful. It has been uh, an incredible journey involving you know, travel, meeting all kinds of people, working in a whole bunch of very interesting uh, situations, individuals. I've worked with the Canadian Embassy here in Switzerland. I've worked with international companies. No two weeks are the same, and that's part of the attraction for me. There's variety every week. Some weeks I'm very busy with four or five speaking engagements. Other weeks I might just have one, but that's okay because it allows me time to write on my blog. It allows me time to do all these necessary administrative things that one has to do when one's on on their own. So it's uh, it's been a great journey so far. Awesome. Well, congratulations again. Thank you. And you're also well known as for being seven-time European champion of public speaking. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I suppose to the extent I'm well known, it would probably be mainly within Toastmasters circle. But uh, yeah, I've, I, I had a very good run from about, let's see, when was my first contest? I think I entered my first contest in 2008. And I was very fortunate. I, I had a good run in the Toastmasters uh, contests. I, I won the district championship, like you said, seven times. Once in the international speech, once in table topics, which for non-Toastmasters, that's impromptu speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, two times the humorous speech and three times the evaluation uh, speech contest. And in the evaluation, two of those were in English and one of those was in French. So it, not, you know... The table topics experience, that's really a wild card because it just really depends on what the question is going to be. You just don't know. The humorous speech contests were a lot of fun for me. I really enjoyed working on the speeches. The ideas came to me fairly quickly, and I just had a lot of fun delivering them. The international speech contest was was a different animal. I It was actually my fourth attempt at that contest. And the first three, yeah, twice I finished second, once I didn't place and each of those speeches is different. Some came more easily, the topics. Others, I really wrestled with them, going back and forth, changing things and whatever. It was, but, you know, the whole experience, looking at it globally, was a very rewarding one. And I would encourage people who are members of Toastmasters to compete. One, because it pushes you. And two, because, especially with the 
prepared speeches, the international and the humorous, you learn about speechcraft, especially if you take a speech through several rounds, because the speech you deliver in the higher rounds, it's not the same speech that you delivered at your club. Yeah. It grows, it evolves. And I think you learn more working on one speech several times than you do on giving a different speech each time. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a contest, and this contest is a very subjective one. It's You've got judges, and yes, there are contests I've won in front of 300 people. There were maybe a dozen judges. You pick, if, if 12 other people had been judging, maybe the result would have been, would have been different. Yes. You'd have a completely different uh, result. It's like figure skating. I, you know, I've played a lot of sports, hockey and, uh, and rugby and sports like that, and it's easy to know who wins. You score more points, you win. You cross the finish line first, you win. To uh, speaking, it's like figure skating. It's subjective. And somebody would give a speaker a 75, and another person might give them a 95, and you just mm -hmm. don't know. So... True, and you you have also been in the um, international level in the, in the, the when I won the international speech contest mm. at district. Then I went to the world uh, championship to the I made it to the semifinals, mm -hmm. but I did not I did not place there. Okay, so you have been once already there at the semifinals. So yep. well, we're talking with someone who's going to be in the future a world champion. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you will be. Not on this podcast. You mean on a future podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> awesome. One question I, I I don't ask it to everybody, but I will ask you. Yes. It's about openers. Because every great speech starts with a strong opener. Could you rewind back to the past and share with us an opener that you remember in a special I'll tell you. I'll tell you an opening that that's uh, very very close to my heart. But it wasn't from one of my speeches. It was from a speech that a client of mine gave. Mm -hmm. Very succinctly, she was working for a foundation, and the foundation supported a lot of good charitable works dealing with psychosocial health in developing countries. Developing countries face a number of challenges, health challenges, and you know, mental health issues are not always understandably at the top of their priorities. Anyway, there was a big a big uh, convention a couple years ago in in Europe bringing together representatives about 200 people from these foundations all across Europe. And my client, she had to give a, a 10, 12 minute talk on the project she was working on. And she was a bit nervous about it because she was going to be one of four members of a panel. She was the fourth speaker. She was the youngest. She had the least experienced, even though she was very experienced. The others had more experience. Mm -hmm. And the other three people were all using PowerPoint. And she was asking me, should I use PowerPoint? And mm -hmm. I said, do you have the other PowerPoints? And she, she said, yeah. And so I took a look at them. They were all doing fantastic work in their own foundations. But the PowerPoints, from a purely presentation perspective, you know, they were very standard. Lots mm -hmm. of text, maybe a few small photos, but basically text. I said, look, you've got 10 minutes. Forget the PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. Just talk about what you're doing because you're doing such great stuff. So we're working on the speech. And I said, you know, she said, how should I begin? What should my opening be? And I said, well, why don't you start with a story? Stories are a great way to open. And she thought for a second and she said, uh, 
like, I, I can't really think of any stories. And I said, I said, you got to be kidding. I said, you've been working in places like Ethiopia, Cote d'Ivoire, Lebanon, other places. You must have stories. Anyway, we worked on another part of the speech and then we took a break. But in the back of my mind, I, I thought I'm going to prod her a bit. So we're having coffee. And I said, I knew she'd just come back from Ethiopia. So I said, why don't you tell me about your trip? And she said, well, it was really interesting. Of course, now that she's not thinking about the speech, the trip becomes mm-hmm. very interesting. And she said the first day she had an appointment at uh, this hospital there. It was the only hospital in the country that dealt with mental health issues. One hospital, 80 million people. It, you know, that puts it in, 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 into context. It was the main hospital there for this issue. And she said it was, it was raining, pouring rain when, when she, the, the car picked her up at her hotel and it, she, it dropped her off and she had to go through this, uh, short archway and across this big open courtyard to get to the main office. And when she's running through the rain across the courtyard, she stopped because there were something like, you know, 150, 200 people standing in a line queuing quietly, silently in the rain. And some of these people had walked with their relatives, with their loved ones for days to get to this hospital. And I'm listening to her and, you know, my jaw is almost hitting the table. This is such a powerful story and quite moving. And I said, that's it. And she said, what? I said, there's your opening story. So fast forward to the conference. And after the other three had spoken, she stands up and no PowerPoint. And the first thing she says was, it was raining the day I arrived at the hospital. And she said, 200 pairs of eyes just locked in on her. And she held them for the next 10 to 12 minutes. And people were coming up telling her, I will always remember this talk. I will always remember this story. It was so touching. And, you know, I find that story about a story very touching because it's personal and we work together to come up with this opening. But it, it goes to show you the power and the importance of a good opening. You get one chance to make a good first impression. And too many people waste that chance by you know, testing the mic or saying some bland, Mm. welcoming remarks. And no, you want to start powerfully to grab your audience. Wow, that's really an an excellent example you have. And that shows how you really, as a public speaking coach, you're doing really amazing things, really. You pull this story from here. Yeah, I mean, the thing I like best about what I do is when I get to see people really improve and when i hear they write me back and they they tell me about you know experiences they've had after the coaching and how well a speech went and it makes me feel that yeah i was able to make a small contribution to help somebody and that that's a great feeling excellent now going to the what the main topic we're going to discuss today is about uh, rhetorical devices and techniques yes what are these rhetorical devices and how old they are when all this started Oh boy, this, <laughs> well, to put it, to put it quite simply, the way I would define rhetorical devices, I would say that they are clever usage of language to make a persuasive argument. Rhetoric developed centuries ago, millennia ago. We go back to the great speakers, speakers like Aristotle, speakers like Cicero, speakers mm-hmm. like Demosthenes. They, they worked with language and speakers that for speakers, that is our tool. If you're a plumber, you have 
wrenches and a toolbox full of other tools. If you're a dentist, you have the drill and the anesthesia and your equipment. If you're a doctor, you have your surgical instruments. If you're a speaker, the tool you have to work with, yes, okay, there is PowerPoint and there are props, Mm. but the main tool you have is your use of language. And this is how great speakers entertain, how they convince, how they persuade, how they inspire. So a rhetorical device is just a way of using language so that it is even more persuasive. That's the best way that I can can describe a rhetorical device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said in, in a very simple way. And now to put it more in practice, because sometimes when we talk about rhetoric, some people are like, oh, sounds... Um, yeah, it has a bad it has a bad reputation. Yes, and also sounds uh, when you start reading the names of these rhetorical devices, sounds like oh, this is complicated. So, could you tell us uh, your few of your favorite uh, rhetorical devices that are simple, easy to use, and can be used in really simple any kind of sure. talk? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a few. First, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start off with with a pair of devices because. They, they are mirror images of each other, and they are called anaphora and epistrophe. Now, those are fancy-sounding words <laughs> derived from Greek, but essentially the, the, the principles are very simple. Anaphora is quite simply the repetition of a word or a phrase at the beginning of successive sentences or clauses. So, for example... It could be a single word. If you think of a famous saying by Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. It's the repetition of the word I. To come to more modern terms, in, the 19, in 1940, when Winston Churchill gave one of his most famous speeches in the House of Commons, mm-hmm. talking about the war, and what did he say? We shall fight in France. Mm-hmm. We shall fight on the seas and the ocean. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. It's this repetition of we shall fight, we shall fight, we shall fight. And then one more example, a very perhaps the most famous speech of the 20th century, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. I have a dream one day the Red Hills of Georgia on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That's powerful stuff, this I have a dream. And the the, the, the beauty, the effect of an anaphora is it, it creates this rhythm, this flowing motion, and it really has an emotional pull. I mentioned epistrophe, mm-hmm. and I said it's the mirror image of, of anaphora. All epistrophe is, it's the repetition of a word or a phrase at the end mm-hmm. of a bunch of, sen- of a series of sentences or clauses. So, examples. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address. He talked about government of the people, by the people, for the people. And coming to a much more a more recent example, Barack Obama's very famous, very famous um, speech when he was when he was campaigning for president. You know, it's what did he say? It's it's a creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. 
It was a creed written to the, into the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. That always coming at the end really makes a, a strong impact and a strong impression. So these are two very simple but very powerful rhetorical devices that anybody can use in a business context or in any type of a speech. I would caution, though, that rhetorical devices should be used the way you would use a fine spice when you're cooking a meal. Mm. You add it just enough to enhance the flavor of the speech, but you don't want to use too many of them to overpower it. Sure. Because if you use too many of them, it, it dilutes the effect and it becomes too much. So those are, those are two to start, anaphora and epistrophe. One of my favorite uh, rhetorical devices has an even more complicated sounding name, uh, <laughs> anadiplosis. <laughs> now, anadiplosis, it comes from the Greek. It basically means a doubling or a folding over. And what an anadiplosis is, it's where you, you begin a sentence or a clause by repeating the last word or words from the previous sentence or clause. And it also gives this rhythm. So, for example, uh, Mar as Margaret Thatcher in, uh, in an address she made in, in the 1980s. She said, without a healthy economy, we can't have a healthy society. And without a healthy society, the economy won't stay healthy for long. So this, she ends with healthy society, and then she begins the next mm -hmm. sentence talking about healthy society. And my favorite uh, anadiplosis of my most favorite one is, comes from Star Wars. Oh. Star Wars, yes. And you remember Yoda, little Yoda, yeah. little green, the, Luke's mentor with the big flappy ears? He said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. So you hear that rhythm. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Mm -hmm. Hate leads to suffering. So mm -hmm. each sentence begins with the first word, of the ending of the previous sentence. Wow. <laughs> so Yoda was a rhetoric master too. <laughs> yeah, Yoda, exactly. Yoda was a rhetorical <laughs> master as well. You know, Steve Jobs, in one of his uh, Macworld keynote addresses, he talked about, you know, we got, uh, he, he talked about his competition. He said something like, they got 2% market share. 2% market share. iPod had 62% market share. And so again, you can see how it's used even even in in modern mm -hmm. uh, business speeches as well. So that's that's I I, I love anadiplosis, and I'll, I'll give you one more. Sure, I'll sure. leave you with one more, which is a very a very powerful one, and it's it's known by many names, but perhaps one of the most common is a tri, it's known as a tricolon, tri or a tricolon, T R I C O L O N, and it comes from uh, the Greek number th uh, meaning three. And, uh, and colon, which means a member or a clause. So it's a series of three words or phrases or sentences. In speaking, uh, as you know well, we often talk about the power of three. The power of three. So, for example, going back to the Julius Caesar quote, I came, I saw, I conquered. Uh, you know, the, the motto of the Olympics, Sitius, Altius, Fortius swifter, higher, stronger. 
wine, women, and song, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This, <laughs> this three, this rhythm of three. And so, you know, again, going back to some great speeches from history, Abraham Lincoln's his second inaugural address. He talked about. He said, "With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right." It's a series of three. And another one. I, I love this quote from Dorothy Parker, the great, uh, the great humorist. She said, "I require three things in a man: he must be handsome, ruthless, and stupid." <laughs> and if for a humorous speech, especially a tricolon is a very powerful is a very powerful tool. You you have the audience going one way with the first two items, but the third item goes in a completely different direction, and that's where that's where the the humor lies. So this this power of three saying things three times. It's been said two is a comparison, four is a list, three is rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So there are there are, there's a few those are a few a few devices that that people can can play around with. If anyone's interested on my blog that that you mentioned at the outset, mannerofspeaking.org, I have a whole yeah. category of of where I, in which I analyze rhetorical devices. A series of posts. There's over twenty of them now. Each one is devoted to a single a single rhetorical device. I try and explain very simply what it means, what the effect is. And then I just give some examples. Well, excellent. You proved that uh, these four that you chose are really, really simple. So it was anaphora, epistrophe, the third, I don't know. The, <laughs> epi- <name>. Epistrophe <laughs> was, it's, the third one was anadiplosis, wow. A-N-A-D-I-P-L-O-S-I-S. And the last tricolon. Tricolon. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And... I know that you have a co-author a game in which you have um, you use this um, these techniques. Um, could you explain us your game uh, rhetoric? Actually, one year ago was Florian Mook also being interviewed here, and he introduced us this. But could you explain a bit more if in this game you use these techniques? Yes, I mean rhetoric. For those who who didn't hear Florian, Florian is my very good friend and partner in, in this board game that we created. We're in our second edition now of the game, and we are in the process of taking rhetoric digital. By the way, we're mm. we're working on on an app for the game, and it's just it's a it's a board game where people you roll 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 the dice. You move your your man across a board, and every time you, you it's your turn, you have to give up, get stand up, and give a one minute speech. It could be on a topic, mm-hmm. on a question from from one of the other players, or there's a couple other instances, examples of of kinds of speeches you have to give. Do we use rhetorical devices? We we have in for one of the the cards called the topic card. Players might or, or can pick using a metaphor. A metaphor where you compare one thing to another. Mm-hmm. You, a metaphor is, for example, if you say to somebody, uh, you're describing a person and you say, he was a bear of a man. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that he was a big man because a bear is a big, powerful animal. So this man was very big and strong. That's an example of a metaphor. Another example of a metaphor, a special kind of metaphor, is a simile where you use the word like or as. He was as hungry as a horse. He's as sly as a fox. 
that's again you're comparing one thing to another so you can use rhetoric in the game but by and large in the game we want to make it as easy as possible for people to just get up and talk so you can use rhetorical devices but you don't have to okay john now could you tell us what is your favorite quotation oh that is such a hard question i love i, <laughs> I love quotations The thing I like about quotations is that there is so much wisdom packed into such a tight a tight bundle and that's the beauty of a good quotation. Let me think. I'll give you two. Mm -hmm. One is the tagline for my blog and it comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He mm -hmm. said all the great speakers were bad speakers at first. Mm -hmm. And I like that quote because I do believe that by and large it is true. Yes, there are a few people who are born with an innate talent to speak well, but the vast overwhelming majority of people who have become good speakers have worked at it. And so it it is a hopeful quote. And many times I work with people and they say, oh, "I'm not a good speaker." And I tell them this quote and it causes them to to think again because it's it's a skill. Speaking is a skill like any other And if you want to get good at it, you have to work at it. You want to become a good dancer, you have to dance. You want to be a good writer, you have to write. If you want to be a good speaker, you have to speak. So that's one of my favorite quotes. The other quote I will give you is, could it be my very favorite quote? I love this quote a lot. It's from Leonardo da Vinci, and it's a very short quote. And he said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And it's five words, but they mean an awful lot. I think in speaking, from my experience, many speeches, many presentations fall down because a speaker tries to do too much. Mm -hmm. They try to cover too many things. They try to tell too many anecdotes. They try to pack too much into their slides. And audiences get tired quickly, and they can't remember, and they, they can't retain what you've said. And the, the really good speakers are the ones, I think, who have the confidence to know, look, I'm going to cover these three points and that's it. And they make them well and the audience leaves and they remember them. I think it's a great quote as well, just as a maxim for life, getting out mm -hmm. public speaking aside completely. I think simplicity really is, if you can simplify your life in terms of the things you need, the things you have. And this is something that I've been you know, working on for several years now to try and just have a, a simpler approach to life. And I just find it's, it's a, you're just happier. It's a happier, healthier way to be. So those are two of my favorite quotes. Yeah, very great ones. Thanks for that. And another difficult question, because I know you read a lot. So I will ask you, recommend us one book that has particularly inspired you or influenced you. Oh, God, <laughs> this is so tough. This is so tough. Oh, favorite quote, favorite books. Oh, boy. Okay, I can't limit it to just one book. Let me just think. In terms of speaking, I tell people my favorite book about public speaking mm -hmm is made to stick. And the irony is that it's not even about public speaking. It is about how and why some things that we hear or learn we can remember for a long, long time and why other things kind of go in one ear and out the other after just a few minutes. The book's called Made to Stick. 
the subtitle of the book is Why Some Ideas Die and Others Survive, or maybe Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die. It's one of the two. Just look up Made to Stick. It's by two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, H-E-A-T-H. And it's a very entertaining book, very easy to read, lots of anecdotes and insights from a whole variety of domains, from business, from entertainment, from philanthropy, um, from urban legends, all this kind of, um, all these kinds of things. And basically the, the two brothers set out to, to try and understand what is it that makes a message stick in our minds. And it's really worth reading the book. But if people want to know the, the, the answer, they found that sticky messages typically have one or more of the following characteristics. They are simple. There's an unexpected element to them. They are concrete. They are credible. There is often an emotional component, and they often come wrapped up in, in stories. It is well worth uh, the price of the book to, to pick it up and to have a look at it and to flip through it, because a lot of these principles people can easily bring into their presentations. So that's one book I'd recommend. Other books, I, I love autobiographies. Uh, Richard Brand and, and biographies. Richard Branson's autobiography, "Losing My Virginity," was a fascinating insight into the man. Uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs was an equally fascinating insight into the the mind of Steve Jobs. In fact, as I was reading the Jobs biography, about a third of the way through, it occurred to me that because Isaacson talks about a lot of Jobs's big presentations, I could close the book, go on to YouTube, watch the actual presentation, and then go back to the book and then read about all the work that went into preparing it. So that's how I read that book. It was, mm -hmm. I would read the book, and when he came to a part where he talked about a big presentation, I'd stop reading, I would look at the presentation, and then go back and read. And that was a very interesting way to read the book. It made it a longer read, but mm -hmm. it was well worth the effort. And I like fiction as well. Uh, there's so many good fiction books out there now. A, a, a recent one that I read has the, has the very intriguing title, The Hundred-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared. It's written by a fellow up in Sweden, Jonas Jonasson, and it's a wonderful read, a lot of fun. And going back to an older fiction, I've, I'm, work, I'm about halfway working my way through the collected uh, works of Arthur Conan Doyle on Sherlock Holmes. And that's a completely different style of writing, late 1800s, wonderful use of language. And these are great stories, the, the, the characters, uh, Holmes and Watson, and how they go back and forth, and these little intriguing mysteries that Holmes solves. It's, it's wonderful to, to read. So I try, and, I try and read fiction just before I go to bed, because if I read nonfiction, I find I start making notes and I start thinking too much. <laughs> So sure, sure. I, try, I try and save my nonfiction reading for during the day or during the morning. Wow, you definitely read a lot. And well, but thanks a lot for these recommendations. Uh, well, a lot of uh, great uh, ideas for my next reads and <laughs> also for our listeners' next reads. My pleasure. Now, can you give us a routine to shine, which is uh, something practical, one exercise that you recommend to do it? regularly what would you tell us i'll give you an exercise that is a very it's very simple to do 
It only takes one minute a day. And if people do this exercise every day for one minute for the next 30 days, it will help them with their stage presence. The purpose of the exercise is to help people stand in a in a in an anchored and grounded manner on stage. When we're on stage, it's important to move. Mm-hmm. However, you want to move with purpose. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, especially beginning speakers, because they might be nervous, because the adrenaline is flowing, they will often shift back and forth. They will step forward, step back. They will wander around without any purpose. Florian Mook, whom we've mentioned already, he calls it them. They're doing the cha cha cha. And it's, it's, it's distracting. And it also takes away from your ethos, your credibility. When you're making a key point, you want to come forward, stand firmly. So this exercise, and it's, it's easier if, 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 if people were able to see me, but all you have to do, people, you stand up just in a comfortable position. You let your arms hang at your side. You close your eyes. You take a few deep breaths. And then you just focus, first of all, on your arms. You start feeling gravity pulling them down. And after a few moments, your arms should start to feel pretty heavy. Then feel that heaviness move into your legs. And this is where you really want to focus. It's the heaviness of your legs and right down into your feet. In fact, you want your feet to feel just like they're rooted to the to the floor, like you have roots growing out from the bottom of your feet into the ground, and that you're a tree. You are solid. And all it takes is about one minute a day. Because if you do this enough times, then when you're on stage, of course, you're not going to stand on stage and close your eyes and let your arms hang. But when you're on stage, all you have to do is think heavy or think of a tree or whatever reminds you of this exercise. And that heavy feeling immediately comes back. And it's a great feeling. It's not the heavy feeling you have when you've eaten too much for lunch and you feel mm-hmm. stuffed. That's not a good heavy feeling. This is a, a, a solid, weighted, anchored feeling. And it will keep you from swaying back and forth. You'll be able to make your points. You can then move during a transition. You get to another point on the, another place on the stage and you anchor again. And that is a very simple exercise, but it's an exercise that can have very powerful uh, and beneficial effects. Hmm. Well, thanks a lot. These are very, very useful, eh? because uh, as you said, it's, it's often that sometimes if we don't, if we are unconscious about it, we'll be moving without control. So that's uh, oh, excellent exercise. Good. Well, thank you a lot, John. It was a fascinating interview with you, with all the all the thoughts about rhetoric, rhetoric techniques, and also everything you have said is really, really fantastic and very, very useful for us. So I really, I really have to give you thanks a lot for that. And could you finally tell us how we can learn more about you? You already mentioned a blog. You can also repeat, and also about the the rhetoric game. How can we find more information, please? Yes. Well, first of all, Oscar, let me thank you for, for inviting me on the podcast. I really admire all the work you've put into this podcast, and I've listened to several of them, and you're doing a great, you're doing a great job. You're bringing people from all over the world to share their ideas, their experiences 
on public speaking, and I think you're you're doing a great service to your listeners. So so thank you for having me. Uh, my blog, as you said before, it's called Manner of Speaking. That's all one word, mannerofspeaking.org. I've been writing it for six years now. I've, like you said, I've got a whole bunch of readers from all over the world. Uh, Prezi, the presentation software, they picked it as one of their favorite public speaking blogs on the web. Wow. So that was very flattering. So everything on there is free, free to use, to download, to share. So if people... Have uh, are interested? They can go over to the blog and please, you know, stay and have a look around. For the game, uh, the website is called rhetoricgame.com, and we have a description of the game. We have a PDF of the rules so people can see how it's played. The rules are very simple, and there's instructions as well. If people want to order the game, we explain how they can do that. So, mannerofspeaking.org and rhetoricgame.com. Those are the two sites that I will leave you with. Thanks a lot. And again, it was a pleasure having you here, John, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Oscar. The pleasure was mine. Take care. Bye-bye. Dear listeners of Time to Shine, this is the end of today's episode. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or for more information, visit our website, www.com. Time to shine podcast.com. Welcome to listen to us again next week.